0: Everybody, today I have a very special guest. If you're a fan of TikTok, even Reels, you might have actually seen this guest. So, without any further ado, why don't we go ahead and introduce ourselves?
1: Yeah, my name is Penny. Uh, I go by Nurse Penny or Penny the Nurse, and I am a hospice nurse. And. I've been a hospice nurse for about 17 years, working in a variety of different hospice settings. So I am passionate about end-of-life care and a hospice advocate.
0: So what I've been doing is compiling different resources that I can, trying to do a whole series about end-of-life. And Penny has taken time out of her day-to-day to join me and talk about more of that nursing side of things. I've had a few different contacts. Actually, I'll I'll tell you, uh, I was talking to a death doula. I'm working on talking to some more of the legal side of things, trying to cover as many bases as possible with end of life and bringing that into the forefront. I think uh, with Western medicine and everything, we're so focused on so many different things that we don't realize how important it is to talk about end of life. So Penny... If you want to get into how did you become a hospice nurse? I mean, is that something that caught your eye at some point? Is it something you've always thought about doing?
1: Well, first of all, I'm an old nurse. I I didn't go to nursing school until I was 40. I actually went to nursing school because my previous husband and I decided to get divorced and I had no career that I'd ever really done and I needed to do something if I was going to be a single mom. His stepmother had been on hospice for cancer and she was on for a short period of time. She was in a hospice inpatient unit for a while and then she went home with hospice. And when I decided to become a nurse, I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to really impact people's lives. And I decided that it would either be working in a skilled nursing home At that time, there was a lot of abuse going on in nursing homes, so I I wanted to do something that made a difference, so I thought, well, I'll either do nursing home or hospice, and it just so happened that after a year of working in a clinic, I went to work in a hospital in a med surge floor, and at the time, I was an LPN, and they did their, you know, every decade or so, they decide they don't need LPNs, and they lay them off, and so I was laid off and I had seen a hospice care center that was brand new that was going to be opening soon. And I thought, okay, well, that must be my sign. And I went and applied and and I was hired and worked my way through school and you know, got my RN and BSN and certification in hospice and, and have just stayed with it ever since. So I was just really drawn to it through the experience that I had with my uh, former stepmother-in-law.
0: So what when you talk about hospice nursing, what are the things that you've noticed that people get right and people, you know, against maybe some of their better information out there, they, they get wrong?
1: Well, there's probably more they get wrong than they get right, to be honest. They get right that we use morphine at the end of life a lot. They get wrong with thinking that we use it for every patient all of the time and that we actually are hastening people's death through the use of morphine. They get that wrong. They get it wrong that we starve patients, uh, don't allow them to eat. That's not true at all. People are dying and they're, they're not hungry when they're dying. Their body is shutting down. Many people think that hospice is really meant only for the final days of life, that somebody who is going on hospice is usually within days of of their death. and And that's absolutely not true whatsoever. We take people on service who have a life expectancy of six months or less, and we want them to come on service early so that we can get to know them and get to know their family. And because we have so many services that we can offer to our patients and to their families, so that that is something that people get wrong a lot. I'm trying to think of the things that people get right about hospice unless somebody's had a personal experience with hospice, most people who haven't they pretty much get most of it wrong to be honest.
0: that would make sense too. I feel like I feel like people just don't understand what it is and in terms of the timeline it can cover, I know that even you know working ER so sometimes we'll get patients and they'll say oh they're they're a hospice patient, and so you always have this like pause moment where you're just like, "Oh well, if they're a hospice patient, now why are they here you know and and I think we even get that wrong in the hospital in terms of everybody's so different within their own hospice treatment in terms of coming to the hospital and still needing antibiotics for an infection. So what are some things even down that avenue that you wish providers knew a little bit more about? Because we get it wrong for sure. I know I have.
1: That's so interesting that you're bringing that up because I I did do a short stint in the ER. So I'd been an LPN working in a hospice care center for five years, got my RN, and it was the agency's policy that if you wanted to be an RN working in hospice, you had to have two years of experience working in another medical field. And people kept telling me, you should go to the ER. You'd be great in the ER. So I did. And I I will never forget an encounter that I had. I was working with my preceptor and a young man came in. He was 40 years old. He was yellow, Simpson yellow, the color of a Simpson. He had pancreatic cancer. He was with his mother. He was crying and saying, I don't want to uh, do this anymore. I, don't, I, I can't stand the pain. I don't want to do this anymore. It's awful. And I said to the mother, has anybody talked to you about hospice? And she said, what's that? And so I said, well, let me get the doctor and you know let the doctor talk to you about that. I walked out into the hallway and I said to my preceptor, I cannot believe that nobody's talked to him about hospice. And she said, well, he's only 40 years old. And if he's coming to the emergency room, he's coming here so that we can save him. And so I realized that there's a big knowledge gap there that people assume that if you're going into the emergency room, that you you want them to do everything to save your life. They don't realize that an emergency can actually be a pain crisis and somebody wants to be out of pain, but also that a 40-year-old could totally be appropriate for hospice if they're dying. That was really a surprise to me, you know, that they didn't get that. And I saw more situations like that was only in the ER for three months. It was a culture shock for me going from hospice to the ER. And I, I kind of got out of there and found another hospice agency that was willing to hire me, you know, with little RN experience that I had. But I saw several times where there was a patient that would come in that was a hospice patient, and there was this kind of like, well, what are they doing here if they're on hospice?
0: And I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm I'm being you know being as realistic as possible, and you you've seen it too that it is you have this pause as a working in the hospital. You're like, well, what is this person doing here?
1: And so many uh, times, our patients will end up in the ER. You know, it happens fairly frequently when a, a person is in a crisis and and they panic and they call 911 or they fall and they end up in the ER. That happens fairly often too. And you know, hospice supports 24/7 and that's another misconception that people have about hospice. We don't go into the home and do 24/7 care. A lot of people think that's what we do and we don't. We support the family. But the family is expected to be the caregiver for the dying person and we support them in in many ways including 24/7 availability by phone or to send a nurse out to visit if something happens. But people panic and they call 911 and they're you know, off to the hospital ER without even thinking twice, even though we've told them multiple times, you know, call hospice, call hospice. If you call 911 first, that's okay, but call hospice second. It happened so many times where I'd have a patient that, you know, as many times as I educated them about that, call us 24-7, you're not waking people up. Nobody's working in their pajamas at midnight. We have nurses at work night shift. They would still, you know, in a panic, they would call 911 or take their loved one into the ER. So it it happened quite often.
0: Along those lines, what happens, and I don't even know if we get the, the verbiage or the proper terminology, but... You know, we do sometimes end up with these hospice patients and somebody says, oh, well, they revoke their hospice or they use some sort of terminology. We'll get that and report. I mean, how f- accurate is that? Is that even correct?
1: That's accurate. So we discharge patients off of hospice in uh, several different ways. One, the first being death, of course. Second is if a person no longer meets that eligibility criteria of a life expectancy of six months or less. That happens as well. where somebody actually improves. And we say, doesn't look like they're going to die within six months. We need to discharge them. And then there's revocation. And a revocation is patient-driven. We cannot revoke a patient off of hospice. If they go to the hospital and they choose treatment, then we will present them with the option of revocation versus you're going to possibly get a bill for this treatment because we won't cover it. And then they'll usually choose to revoke their hospice benefits so that what that does is it opens up that whole extra Medicare coverage for treatment for them. So that is accurate terminology. So a good example of that is, you know, our elderly patients who fall and break a hip, they go to the hospital and they're presented with, do you want to go home on hospice with pain management Or do you want to have surgery and repair this? And some will choose surgery and hospice will not cover that. We won't cover surgery for a broken hip. That's a kind of a curative measure. So we won't do that. And so then the patient needs to revoke their hospice benefit in order to seek that treatment. Now, once they've had that treatment, they can reelect the hospice benefit as long as they still meet that criteria of six months or less of life expectancy.
0: And so that sounds like that's kind of the big thing. Like you were saying some things before it's, it's having that in mind with that six months or less being more into that hospice distinction. Right. So, so that's, is that the big overarching thing when you think about even approaching a patient family member, somebody about even having that discussion is thinking about, is this person going to have six months on their timeline?
1: That is probably the main, the main thing, the number one, and then really closely, number two would be, are they wanting to seek treatment for whatever their disease is that is expected to end their life? So if it's somebody that has cancer, one, are they expected to die within six months? And two, are they stopping their treatment? Because hospice doesn't cover treatment for cancer. So- somebody needs to be ready to say, either I'm done, I don't want this anymore, or there are no more treatment options for that person. And the provider says, there's nothing else we can do for you. And that's that's when they would meet the criteria.
0: And so when you're saying the hospice covers certain things, can you go a little bit into that as well?
1: Sure. So um, most hospices are Medicare certified. If they're not, I, I, I tell people run away. Don't don't go to a hospice agency that's not Medicare certified. Medicare certified agencies have to follow the same rules for all of their patients regardless of their payer source. So, so all of the rules are the same. The Medicare benefit will pay a per diem rate for a hospice patient. So it's a daily rate. It's published online. You can find out what it is. I forget what it is. I think it's 161 a day. It, it recently changed. And we are expected to cover everything that's related to their terminal illness, including nursing visits, social work visits, chaplain visits, hospice aids, medications, durable medical equipment. All of those things are to be covered by hospice under that per diem rate. So it doesn't matter what we do for a patient. We could be seeing them once every two weeks and they could be taking a, you know, a couple medications by mouth. Or we could have a patient that's getting daily nursing visits, daily hospice aid visits, the hosp- the social workers involved, the chaplains involved. We're doing a dilated infusion in the home. We're doing a palliative sedation with the Versed infusion in the home and we get paid the same. It doesn't matter what we do. So everything is covered under that hospice Medicare benefit that's related to their terminal diagnosis. We also do comfort therapies. We have massage therapists. Sometimes we'll have Fantology, music phantology, aromatherapy just a variety of different things that we will cover under that hospice benefit
0: when you think about the timeline and everything then you know a patient you know is on hospice and then they're off of hospice and then they end up back on hospice does the time like restart every time
1: yes that's a great question that's a really great question So it does. And not only in that circumstance, but at every benefit period. So we start with a 90-day benefit period. And at the end of that 90 days, again, we're determining, is there a life expectancy of six months or less? We're not going, okay, well, it's already been three months. So now we're looking at, we need to have a life expectancy of three months or less. It's always, is there a life expectancy of six months or less? So 90-day benefit, then there's a second 90-day benefit. And then after that, it's unlimited 60-day benefits. At the end of each 60-day benefit, there has to be an in-person visit by a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant to go and evaluate that person in person. And we do that recertification every 60 days. So really, as long as a person meets the hospice criteria of six months of life expectancy or less they can stay on service for however long that is. And so sometimes we end up with patients on service for a year, two years. It's rare, but sometimes three years. I've seen one for five years. There are disease processes that are really challenging to prognosticate. And of course, I mean, everybody knows it's very difficult to predict death. We just, sometimes we can do it, you know, sometimes we're right on the money. But really, overall, it's it's really difficult to predict death. And so that's why there's no limitation on those benefit periods, as long as that person at any given time meets that criteria of a six-month or less life expectancy.
0: I think that clears up a lot of some of the questions I've had, like on a personal level too, where you would get, sometimes you'd see people in the ER that, you'd recognize the name and you're like, wait a second. I thought this person was a hospice patient, especially because so I'm a travel nurse and I've worked at a little bit smaller towns and I'll see a couple people. I remember seeing a patient that I, I knew was a hospice patient that came into the emergency room that had something happen and the family, you know, revoked the hospice so that they can get treatment on our end. And then they were working with the hospice company, I guess, on, getting things like realigned. It was this whole thing, but it was like, oh, okay, wait, you can do that? <laughs> and that was the first time I was like, oh, I didn't really realize that you can have that sort of, I guess, re-up it. I don't know. And like I said, I'm so, I apologize about any verbiage I'm using that's wrong. Please, please correct me. But yeah, I was kind of confused by that. But but what you just said clears it up a little bit better about as long as, you know, their disease process still has that six month Time frame, they can still qualify and be a hospice patient. So that clears it up a little bit better for me on why some people can be on hospice for more than a six-month period, like through and through because they're being evaluated, but their disease process still falls under that.
1: Well, the other thing is the lack of understanding about how that works with the recertification and, and the life expectancy of six months or less is that People are under the assumption that a hospice patient is really sick in bed, you know, not going out into the community. And so I see people on like TikTok, especially TikTok, who have terminal diseases and they're on hospice and commenters will say, you're not really sick. Why are you going out in public? Why are you making TikToks? You don't look like you're dying, you know, and so I do. A lot of videos to illustrate that patients who are on hospice, they go out to the casino, they get married, they renew their vows, they go on vacation, they go to Hawaii, they, you know, they do all kinds of different activities. Just being on hospice doesn't mean that they're going to be sick and in bed. The earlier we get them, the better, because we that's what we want to help them do. We want them to check off their bucket list, and we want to help them to do that by managing their pain for them, you know, and by having those check-in calls and the ability to to check in on them and make sure that everything's going okay. So, yeah, so a lot of people think, oh, they're just really
0: close to the end of life. They must be like sickly and feeble and, and, and their mind must be gone, you know, all that stuff too. Yes, exactly, exactly. So just touching on that, how did you find yourself becoming this, you know, on Nurse Penny on TikTok and, and how did that come to be? Because that's really how I've, I connected to you was that I saw a TikTok somebody sent me. So how did that happen?
1: Well, you know, during the pandemic, like so many people, I, um, I found TikTok. I actually saw... A pediatrician on the news who had been doing TikToks about vaccinating and anti vaxxers were making death threats against her. It's Dr. Nicole Baldwin. So I saw her and I was like, wow, I can't even believe that people would do that. And and I looked her up on TikTok and I started seeing all these TikToks. And I actually started TikTok wanting to learn how to shuffle dance because that was what kept coming up into my feed. And I thought, oh, I'm going to shuffle dance. And I made a couple of, you know, just funny little TikToks. And, and, then, uh, and then one day I thought, oh, I should tell a hospice story on TikTok. As I was watching it more and seeing, oh, okay, other people are doing more than just do these dances on here and lip syncing, they're actually telling stories and, and educating. And so um, I told a story about a patient I had um, when I was first a hospice nurse and, and it went viral and i thought oh wow i have an opportunity here to educate about hospice and kind of the the rest is history i just started doing stories and i've always kind of had a creative streak in me i used to sing in a rock band i did community theater when i was younger i'm very creative and so i actually started thinking well gosh it would be fun to do some of these tiktok trends and kind of incorporate hospice into it too and maybe reach a younger generation, you know, that is going to get something different out of seeing the TikTok trends. And and so I just kind of branched out and, and started doing the stories. Uh, people asked me so many questions. So I still do a lot of comment responses to answer questions. And then I do a lot of the, the trendy stuff. And I've had people that have said, wow, you know, it was interesting because I recently did one, uh, there's a song called the cigarette do it where she's like, it's just a cigarette, then it cannot be that bad. And so I did one to that, lip syncing it and saying, you know, as long as a person who's dying is not using oxygen, it's okay for them to smoke. And it's kind of like, uh, the one is like, honey, don't you love me? And you know, it makes me sad. And it's the family member saying, but you have lung cancer. You shouldn't be smoking. And so I was like illustrating that. A person who's dying should be able to smoke, even if they have lung cancer. And I had so many people that really responded to that and said, oh, well, I didn't even realize that. Or they told their own story about how their grandma wanted chocolate cake and nobody wanted her to have it. So they snuck it into her. And, you know, it's really interesting. The feedback I get tells me that people are paying attention to that education style You know, I'm reaching kind of a different audience with that education
0: style. Which is so important, especially regarding the fact that people are so hesitant to talk about end of life in general. If I were to bring up to my own father, like hospice care, based on our life experiences, I know it'd be a very good conversation. But if I were to bring that up to somebody else in my family member who is not, you know, in their 70s and 80s. And my dad is very much still active and able-bodied, but still having a conversation, you know, and continuing those conversations. That's what I was talking to another uh, on another interview I was talking about. You know, you have these conversations not as a one-off. That's the thing is that create the space so that you can continue to have the conversations. And I don't know, is that something that you have to kind of do for family members sometimes is yes I'm here as a as a hospice nurse, but I'm also helping the family member to to express, you know, they're still be independent and still have a say in their healthcare decisions. I mean, do you run into that as well, you know, where yes, the patient's ready for this, that, and the other, but you were talking about, you know, the family members being like, why are you smoking? You have lung cancer. But at the end of the day, that's still a person that's you know autonomous and independent and still can advocate for themselves do you find resistance to certain topics or
1: yeah sometimes definitely there there can be resistance i think one of the most difficult things to deal with is when you have a patient who's in the hospital and something has happened they've had an event and they're not decisional and the family has decided For them to put them on hospice. And they don't want us to talk to the person about being on hospice. And that's fine as long as that person's not decisional. But if they start to become more alert and they have More awareness about what is going on, we really are obligated to talk to them about the fact that they are on end of life care. They are on a hospice benefit that has been elected for them. And, you know, because of informed consent, they really need to understand that. And I think what families don't understand sometimes is when they're a durable power of attorney or legal decision maker. They think that they are able to make those decisions for a person even when that person is decisional, and they're not. They are legally not able to make decisions for a person who is decisional, and they don't understand that. And so that's kind of a slippery slope sometimes that we have to navigate around. And I've done several several videos to illustrate how when you go to a patient's family, sometimes they don't want you to say the word hospice. They don't want you to tell them that you're with hospice, you know, and it's it's uncomfortable and awkward because it's kind of like, well, you know, if he understands, oh, you introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. If like, hey, I'm just here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, you know, we have to have those conversations, but probably more challenging. A lot of people are okay with, you know, when. When you talk to them and you say, you know, cigarette smoking is not going to hasten their death. You know, they've the damage is done. It's it's really okay. We're more concerned about oxygen safety than anything or letting them eat just a bite or two. You don't need to force them to eat. Sometimes it takes a while for them to get there and sometimes they get it right away. But the more challenging situations is when you have multiple family members. The patient has never designated a person to be their legal decision maker, you've got five kids, one lives in another state, they haven't even seen their mom for a year. And the last time they saw her, she looked great. They don't understand why she's going on hospice in the first place, you know, and they're not in agreement. And that's when it gets to be very, very challenging. And that's why those upstream conversations are critical. It's so critical for people to really make their needs known to their family.
0: And I always tell people, and I do this a lot on my own social media, is don't make it a one-time conversation. It could change, like, and I'm assuming you see it on your side, it could change while they're on hospice, you know, what they express that they want for end of life or or where they're at, um, both the patient and their family members. So do you get thrown into, not thrown, but do you end up having to kind of play that mediator? Because it sounds like sometimes you have to be the person coming from like, this is the realistic aspect of what we can do for your loved one versus what they want to be done. So let's try and figure out how we can best address both people.
1: Yes, yes. And, you know, fortunately, there's a team. So there's a social worker and a chaplain involved to help navigate those difficult discussions as well. Definitely. You know, and like you're saying, it's it's more than one conversation. And another big myth about hospice is that all patients have to be a uh, do not resuscitate to come onto hospice. And that is not true. Medicare does not allow us to refuse hospice services to somebody who is a full code. And, you know, it's that's challenging because we know what's going to happen as they start to crump and die is that, what is it they say, less than eight intubate, a person who's dying, you know, or has died a natural death, you know, we don't want to have to start CPR on them. We know what harm that can cause a person. And so, you know, we have to have those conversations with them ongoing. Like we're, Yeah, you can be a full code, but we're going to keep talking about this with you.
0: Like, realistically, this is what it would be like if they bring them back. Like, this is what will happen if they're on a machine to support their breathing or something to that effect.
1: Right. And And I always like to say, if we're able to get you back, you're not going to be better than you were before you went down
0: it's not going to take away the root.
1: Exactly. You're still going to have cancer and you're likely to have fractured ribs now as well. So yes, and and sometimes what ends up happening when patients are completely like refusing to discuss that, they want to be a full code and then they get into that they're actively dying stage where they're no longer responsive and we're readdressing it with the family and the family will change That code status because once the family is, or once the patient is no longer decisional, the family has the legal authority to do that. And sometimes it's just a matter of we say, okay, well, if he dies tonight, you need to call 911 and they'll come and, and attempt resuscitation and they just don't call. So that ends up happening sometimes. There is a generation of people that really don't, they don't understand. That medical technology, for as many advances as there has been in their lifetime, still has its limitations. And, you know, my girlfriend's mother had a stroke um, a couple years ago, and, and she asked me to go and speak with her about hospice. And I brought a Pulse form with me, of a physician order for life sustaining treatment, to talk with her about, you know, what her wishes were. And the first thing on there is do you want to be um, a DNR or full code? And she said, Well, if I'm brain dead, I don't want them to try to resuscitate me. And I said, Well, we're not going to know
0: that. Right. That has to be determined.
1: Yeah, we don't know if your brain if you're in your home and you go down, we don't know if you're brain dead or not. You know, and by the time anybody knows, you will have been for a while. So, you know, it's they don't have a real clear understanding they've watched a lot of TV shows, they really don't understand that it's, I think, a 15% chance that you'll be resuscitated. When you go down without a heartbeat and a breath and you're clinically dead and somebody attempts resuscitation, I believe the last I saw was 15% chance of survival of that.
0: That's always what the time is tissue sort of thing, where it's just like, you know, the more the more time you spend without any life-saving interventions even if you get a person back their quality of life is not is not going to be what it was no matter what you do
1: right and i've had a patient that was a DNR and uh it, that information wasn't available when he went down and they attempted resuscitation and they revived him and he had fractured ribs and he came to hospice on a dilated infusion and he was really pissed
0: that's okay so so going into that like i always wonder about that and i always I know that, you know, when you are a little bit, maybe a little bit more cognizant of end of life and you have your wishes known, it's a different sort of uh, setting where, you know, a person could probably come into your house, you know, if if a, let's say like a concerned neighbor called and was like, can you do a welfare check on so-and-so? And they did, and they saw like their form on the fridge, right? That's what they always say, or it's in plain sight. Okay, we understand, you know, we'll go with the next steps. But for a person that they see, they assess, they get a pulse and they bring them back and then find out later their DNR. I mean, I don't know. I'm like, oh, you know, there's not necessarily that you think about, oh, gosh, could they legally be responsible for that? But at the same time, I, I guess you couldn't because that things aren't in a, a very obvious place. You know, a person, a bystander even, sees somebody go down on the street and they know how to do, let's say, like compression only CPR and they, they help to get that person back. And they don't know anything Anything better. I mean, oh, it breaks your heart to think that here you are thinking that a person's doing like the best thing ever and getting somebody back. But at the end of the day, it's like, eh, it may have not been that person's actual wish.
1: Right. Yeah. But, you know, always, always people err on the side of life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to step over somebody.
1: Exactly, and we we tell our patients everywhere you go, you keep a copy of that post in your wallet. You keep it in your glove compartment. You have that with you all the time, if you know to make sure. But you know it does happen where somebody does not have that available, and people are going to err on the side of life and initiate resuscitation efforts.
0: Yeah, and that's the other thing too is that you know if you're a bystander who doesn't know to look for those things, absolutely 100% always, right? If you have the skills and you know what to do, absolutely initiate those interventions. And it's safe to do so. But for anybody else, you know, EMS, they know, they know what to look for. If they respond to a scene, they know the things to kind of like, oh, let's make sure that this person wants this to be done. And they can assess that relatively quickly. Or if they're People who, you know, are working within a, a community where they know those people, they know those families, sometimes they they know who this person is, actually, and, and they know what they want, even if the paperwork isn't readily available. So it must kind of be a little bit frustrating when you get those people, like you said, who I would, <laughs> I don't blame that guy for being really, really upset and pissed off that, you know, they brought him back, but... Again, it goes back to having those discussions and i don't I don't know how we can fix that in western in the in the civilization we're in because we are so hesitant, especially in North American culture. We look at prolonging life a lot and we don't realize that everyone's gonna die and and the sooner you kind of express that what you want to your loved ones and you keep having those conversations, the more comfortable I feel like people can be as they approach that end of life. Do you have to do some counseling? Do you have to do a little bit of those come to Jesus meetings, as they say, with a family members sometimes on what boundaries are kind of being set and, and the things that, you know, you guys can do?
1: Definitely, definitely, especially in our care centers. And and so just to clarify too, um, I work in hospice quality now, so I haven't done patient care for a while, but I still do quality and Quality and education for hospice, but definitely in the care center that my agency runs, we have a policy about patients who come to the care center full code that we don't have a crash cart. We will initiate CPR and we'll call nine one one, and that's all we will be able to do for them. and And it's been that way in every care center that I've worked at, and every care center that I've been associated with as a home hospice case manager, the care centers that I would send my patients to who were going in for general inpatient care, every single one of them would take a full code patient, but they would have to let them know if we're faced with that situation, we do not have a crash cart. So we are going to call 911 and initiate CPR, same as if they went down in their own home.
0: So that's also something I was just thinking about asking you too, is that you know, there's home hospice, home, that sort of aspect. And then there are the actual facilities, right? Yes. And
1: there's different levels of hospice care. So the majority of hospice is done at home or in a home-like environment or in like basically what somebody calls home. So, you know, we do hospice in private homes. We do hospice in, so I like to say we do hospice in private homes. We do hospice in skilled nursing facilities, we can do hospice in a van down by the river. Like we will do hospice in the environment that that person calls home. And that could even be a homeless shelter. It's not ideal, but we can do that. And then there's hospice care centers. And most of the time, hospice care centers take patients who are on a higher level of care, requiring skilled nursing 24-7. Sometimes they'll take routine hospice patients, but there's There's usually going to be a room and board charge, just like with the nursing home, because Medicare doesn't cover that for a routine hospice patient. But for a patient who has skilled nursing needs for acute symptom management, Medicare will cover that room and board in a hospice care center or in a hospital. So there are facilities, and that's where I started and where I worked the first seven years I did inpatient care center. That was my my first hospice nursing experience. I always say I I worked at the bedside. I had the in-your death, in your face, death and dying experience working in in those places for my first seven years of hospice nursing.
0: So you always hear about like people see things before I mean did you run into your fair share of people seeing things? We actually were having a discussion discussion about this not too long ago uh, at work. we're talking about some patients talking about seeing the animals and everything. And you're like, what, what animals, what are you guys talking about? And sure enough, after that, that person like, you know, passed away shortly thereafter seeing either a person or an animal that wasn't quite there. You know, you get kind of like the goosebumps whenever someone says one of those, but would you say that you've, you've had enough of them that you're like, there's something to it. Or are you still kind of like "Mm, it's happened, but not enough that you're like, Oh, you know, that always happens.
1: I've seen it so many times. And and I can tell you, even if I had only seen it once or twice, it would still have impacted me because it's so, it's when you see somebody visioning. It's So first of all, and this is something that people don't always get, it's not just right at the end of life that people will start to vision. And, and a lot of people say, well, it's just the morphine. And no, this actually happens with patients weeks before their death when they're completely able to communicate to us what's going on. They're not on any morphine or any other medication that could cause a hallucination. They're very clear in what they say. And when they're talking about these things, it's, you almost start to feel like you're the one who's crazy because you can't see who they see. It's very, very realistic.
0: That's what we were talking about. Honestly, we were just like, they were saying clear as like, me talking to you right now, or you seeing your friend at lunch, like it was that sort of like explanation, like, oh, she's right behind you, you know, that sort of thing. Because we were talking about how, especially most of us, it was during our clinicals that a patient would say, oh, and who's this behind you? And you'd look around like, there's no one behind me. And then the patient would be able to describe the person behind you very clearly,
1: yeah. And pets too. People will see their. I remember a woman telling me she kept seeing cats in her room and it's usually familiar to them. It's somebody they know. It's their parents or their sibling. Or one lady kept seeing a baby and her family was like, who is the baby? Why is she keeps saying she's seeing a baby? And the patient's sister said she actually had a baby out of wedlock that died. And the family didn't know it. They never knew that before. And the patient was saying she saw, you know, she kept seeing this baby girl. And and the patient at that point was closer to the end and not really able to tell them what, you know, like a full story about what was going on versus somebody who like, you know, I had a lady who, who was sitting with me at her kitchen table and I would always check in with my patients and ask them certain things. You know, we actually consider that a sign of um, approaching end of life when somebody is visioning. That's actually... A sign that somebody's getting closer to the end. And so I would ask certain things, you know. And one of the things I would ask would be, Are you seeing anything out of the ordinary? And she'd say, Like, what? And I said, Well, you know, like deceased loved ones. Oh, no, no, nothing like that. And I said, Oh, okay. Because that's really normal if you are. And she said, It is. And I said, Yeah, it's normal. It happens all the time when people are getting closer to the end of life. And she said, Oh, well, my dad is standing in the kitchen right now. I didn't want to tell you because I was afraid you'd think I was crazy. And of course, her dad was her dad was deceased and there was nobody there in the kitchen, right? That There was no one there in the kitchen, but, you know.
0: I could do the goosebumps.
1: Yeah. And that's the other thing about, you know, educating about end of life is normalizing. Like I use the hashtag normalize death all the time because people, when you tell them that what's going on, whether it's with them, the patient, or with the family who's observing it, if you say to them, that's normal, the relief is palpable. You know, they are so relieved to know, oh, okay, that's normal. You know, I was so worried. I saw these breathing changes. I didn't know what was going on. I thought something was wrong. No, it's normal. People's breathing changes a lot at the end of life, you know, or, or they're, their feet are purple. Like, why are their feet purple? Oh, that's normal. The circulation's, you know, shutting down because the, the body needs to keep living and the heart and lungs are more important than the feet. So the body is just intuitively turning things off. It's normal. You know, oh, it's normal. Okay, that's okay. Oh, whew. You know, they really, really want to know that what they're experiencing is not something that's unique and unusual and harmful to their loved one.
0: Right, that's sort of like, are they in pain? Are they uncomfortable? Is this going to be hurting them? And then you can give that chance to give them, you know, reassurance and education about what's going on. So here's a question, I guess, pertaining towards more of what's going on in the world. Have you seen at least COVID sh- like shift things or, or switch up things in terms of what hospice providers can do, what hospice nurses can do? I mean, has it been an adjustment?
1: Yeah, we've been impacted by COVID really, unfortunately, um, probably almost as much as any other healthcare uh, provider right now. Um, we haven't been able to provide as much service in person. We do a lot more telehealth visits. We've actually, here's something interesting that we've had to do to adapt. We have a lot of patients that are hard of hearing and they lip read and they can't lip read when someone's wearing a mask. So we've actually had to source masks that have a clear window in them so that they can still see the person's mouth and they can lip read. Our clinicians are, so our chaplains are mostly doing telehealth visits. I mean, we've really had to do a lot of telehealth visits, we've lost staff. We've had staff out that are sick. Either they have COVID or they're suspected to have it. And if they're suspected, if they're what we call a PUI, a person under investigation or a PUM, a person under management, they can't work for two weeks. So we're short staffed all the time because we have, you know, our our staff, are out in the community exposed to COVID and they get any symptoms, they have to do a daily screening. If they have any symptoms, they can't work. So, you know, we're short staffed and not able to make those in-person visits as much. Our grief support services department has not been able to have group sessions. You know, we provide grief support services for a year after the patient has died to the family. That's a requirement by Medicare and they do all kinds of grief support and they do like these group sessions and they have not been able to do them because of COVID. And we've had patients who have come onto service with COVID. That's their terminal diagnosis and they die from COVID. So it's really impacted us a lot in, in Washington state where I live it's on the uptick again. You know, we're, we're getting more cases again. And yeah, it's really, it's impacting us when we have a person that lives in a skilled nursing facility. The whole facility goes on lockdown and the facilities at first, they didn't allow us to come in at all. They were telling us, you can't come in. And we had to get some clarification from CMS on that to say, no, we, we need our nurses to be able to go in at least... You know, at least once a week and check on our patients and,
0: and be there in person.
1: Yeah, and our nurses have to um they're subjected to testing every time they go in to the skilled nursing facility, they have to test, they have to do a rapid test for COVID, they have to wear an N ninety five or a capper or a papper, full gown, gloves, everything. If one person in the facility has COVID, then In a congregate setting like that, the nurse has to be geared up for every patient that they're seeing.
0: Treat everybody. Yeah, treat everybody like they have it. Yep. Or that you can give it to them, I guess. So here's, I guess, here's where we could round it out a little bit from the nursing side of things. Okay, so I know that there are, there's a nurse audience, there's a medical audience that does listen to this podcast as much as non-medical people. So for the medical side of people, what would you suggest to somebody who's listening or has thought about getting into hospice nursing like what would be some of their first steps that they can take towards uh maybe pursuing that a little bit more fully?
1: Well, we get a lot I get a lot of questions about uh new gra- you know a lot of comments on my um my TikToks and my Instagram from nurses saying, oh, I really want to go into hospice. I'm a new grad or I'm going to be graduating soon. How do I get into hospice? If you've never had nursing experience, I would only recommend that you either, if you can find a residency program, which are far and few between for hospice, or if you can work in an inpatient care center, That's the only way I would recommend a new grad go into hospice nursing or somebody who hasn't done any kind of direct patient care. Otherwise, if you want to be a home hospice nurse, you're out there in a vacuum. Your skills have to be very good. You have to not only have the physical skills like putting in a Foley catheter or accessing a port, um, doing wound care, anything like that, but you also need to have the skills to identify when a person is you know, transitioning, getting closer to the end of life. You need to have skills talking to the family and educating about the things that you're seeing, navigating through all kinds of family conflict. So I really recommend that you go into either ICU or oncology or into a long-term care setting. Any of those settings are going to help you get some exposure to learning skills and dealing with dying patients.
0: And having that kind of home health independent aspect outside of a hospital I'm assuming as well.
1: Yes. Yeah. That would be helpful too. Yeah. It is very different going into a person's home and taking care of them. You it is really different, I mean. Right. Yeah. You know, hoarders and I mean, all kinds of situations that you walk into, but yeah. We've had a couple ER nurses that have transitioned into hospice. I
0: was about to say, I was like, I've had a few. I've uh, known a few of them that said that they worked bedside for decades. And then they said, you know what, I'm going to go into hospice and kind of be more towards that sort of thing. And they've loved it. They said that literally like reinvigorated their passion for nursing is being around those patients and caring for those. So
1: I think that's a, that's a key important factor that people who want to transition from a v- environment that's very curative focused into hospice really have to be at that point when they've seen enough death of people who, that, you know, or interventions that should have been stopped to where they're ready to make that shift, you know, and let go of the let's do everything. Because I think when people have been in an ICU for a short period of time and they decide to go to hospice and they're not at that point yet where they've seen so many situations where patients are tortured that should be allowed to die a natural death. They kind of hold on to that. Let's do everything. Focus. Whereas, you know, the best hospice nurses that I know who have come from those environments are the ones who were like, I watched my last patient who should have been allowed to die a natural death get tortured and I decided that I needed to move into hospice instead.
0: Well, and it's so true. And and honestly, it's like, it's those people that come in that are, they have so many, so many things going on. And then you hear, you know, you go, oh, what's their code status and their full code. And you take this look at it, this person and you're just like, if they're a full code, I'm just keeping their body alive. I'm not keeping them alive. And there's a difference. There's totally a difference between those two schools of thought of like, oh yeah, we can keep a body alive. We're really good at keeping organs alive. Trust me, like <laughs> medical advances, like we said earlier, have come such a long way that it's incredible what we can do to keep organs alive, but to keep a person alive is completely different. So yeah, the, the one I remember, I was actually like, I think I either had just graduated or I was just about to get out of nursing school. And I met a nurse that was a family friend that did flight nursing, ER nursing, ICU, And she told me, she was like, Kim, I will never, I I would never lie to you. I'm a straight shooter. I was like, I know. And she said, one of the best decisions I made was going from critical care and ER into hospice. It's been so much better for my mental health. And she told me, she said, keep that in mind. If you ever get to that point, keep it in mind. And I was like, okay, yeah, whatever, you know, (laughs) getting ready to like be so gung ho about what I wanted to do. And I think COVID kind of supercharged that thinking where I'm like, oh, I kind of get it now. I'm starting to get what she said. When she meant like, there's a difference between, you know, a comfort care and what you can do for a person and still be respectful and still honor what they want to do. And then also helping the family, helping the person, helping everybody in that sort of situation to really come to terms with the fact that this person is going to die and being able to have the medical side of things and and kind of bridge that for them. So I was like, I get it now. (laughs) It took me a little while, but I, I'm starting to get what she meant.
1: We like to say when the doctor says there's nothing more that we can do, oh, yes, there is. You know, it's a focus of quality over quantity at that point.
0: Yeah, I agree that, you know, normalizing death, as you say, you know, one of your your things is really prevalent in, in your videos is something that I'm a big proponent of. I'm um, having these conversations. And I'm hopeful that with people hearing, you know, these interviews and and hearing some of the other stuff, you know, that I have going on, and I will be uh, hopefully getting in, like I said, getting into contact with more of the legal side. I'm hoping I can put as much out there for people to be like, here are avenues, here's how you can get the conversation started, and really have these co- have these discussions and keep having them. That's the big thing I feel like people need to remember: is this isn't a, a one time discussion that you're going to have with your family members, your loved ones. like Keep having these discussions because people's wishes can change and that's totally fine. And I think people need to be allowed to have that safe space within their family, within their family members and the people that they, they trust, their friends or whoever they trust with their end of life wishes to be able to talk to them and say, hey, you know what, actually, I want this to happen in the event of this. And it's always a person's comfort level. And at the end of the day, you know, everybody has autonomy. So, you know, we got to respect it. What would be your final closing thought that you want people to take away?
1: I always like to address that people say that they don't want their loved one to go on to hospice because they feel like it's giving up hope. And we like to say that it's not about giving up hope. It's about changing hope and what we can do for somebody is that, you know, we can give them the hope to die comfortably in their own home with their family present, avoid hospitalization, avoid the ER and help them to check off their bucket list at the end of life. So that's, that's kind of one of my favorite things to say is it's really not about giving up hope. It's about changing hope.
0: I love that sentiment. Penny, go ahead and give people the the rundown of where they can find you, especially on social media.
1: Yeah, I'm on TikTok. My username on TikTok is nurse underscore Penny. And on Instagram, it's Penny underscore the underscore nurse. Who knew there were so many nurse pennies on Instagram? Uh, So I had to have a different username. There is another nurse underscore Penny on Instagram and I reached out to her to say, hey, um, if you're not going to use this username, can I use it? But she's never on there, so she hasn't replied. So she
0: hasn't seen the message.
1: Yeah, she hasn't seen the message. But if you go to my TikTok, nurse underscore Penny, actually, there's a link in there to my um, Instagram account. And if you go to my Instagram account, penny underscore the underscore nurse, there's a link in there to my TikTok account.
0: Perfect. And I will be making sure in the show notes put links to all of her socials, go check her out, reach out to her. She's very, very friendly and awesome and accommodating. And I'm so grateful and blessed that you took the time to, to chat with me and, and provide some information. And I hope people who are listening out there have a little bit understanding, uh, a little bit better understanding about hospice and hospice nursing.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much.